0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Pray that this morning our worship has been acceptable in your sight. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are present this morning with your church, and we pray that you will continue to soften our hearts and open our ears and our minds to hear the message that you have for us. Father, I pray that I will not be a hindrance in the message that you have this morning, but that you will work through me in spite of me, and that your word will not return empty. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, uh, we're just a few weeks away uh, from concluding our series, <clears throat> excuse me, on Genesis. It was, uh, it was last September when Pastor Terry started off this series, and over the last few months, what I have come to really appreciate about that is the the amount of time Pastor Terry spent right up front establishing the fact, in fact establishing the foundation that God is the central character in the story of Genesis. He drilled this foundational truth that even though uh, Genesis captures the lives and times of many individuals, many human beings, from Adam and Eve all the way to Joseph, the central figure in the entire narrative is God himself. Sometimes he's at the forefront as we see him during the time of creation or in the act of creation. Sometimes he is working through his angels as we saw in the destruction and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes he appears in person as we see him wrestling with Jacob. And sometimes he seems to be completely out of sight as it seems to be in the chapter that we read today. Whatever the case may be, there is no mistaking the fact that God is present through all of Genesis. In fact, through all of history. And the stories that center around Adam and Eve and other people in the Bible are of secondary context. Even though they have their own valuable lessons in them, that's for sure, but the primary context still remains God's presence, God's provision, and God's protection for his people. I believe that the word of God for us today is a word of encouragement, and it comes to us from the life of Joseph. For the past few weeks, we've been studying the life of one of the greatest patriarchs of our our faith, Joseph. One of the beautifully unique things about Joseph is that unlike Pretty much every other main character in the Bible, the Bible does not record any character flaws or any lapses of judgment or any grievous sins by him. It's not because he was sinless, but it's because the Holy Spirit wanted to show us the life of a man who lived in integrity before God. And God chose to honor him by showing us his life in this manner. The life of Joseph is a life of ups and downs. Uh, As we heard in the last few Sundays, he was very much loved by his his father. He was given a beautiful cloak. His brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him, but providentially they ended up selling him to some traders. He ends up as a slave in an Egyptian official's home. But despite all of this, he chooses to live a life of integrity before God. And God blesses him for that and Joseph earns the respect and trust of the Egyptian official, Potiphar. Things seem to be going well for him, but life throws another curveball at him. Potiphar's wife wants to seduce Joseph, but he resists, he flees from her, and she falsely accuses him, and Joseph ends up in prison. This is where we find Joseph in the chapter that we just read, in chapter 40. But as in all previous situations, Joseph serves the jailer with integrity, with honesty, and God blesses him there as well. He is given over to the two officials of Pharaoh that are in prison, and so he serves the two of them. He interprets their dreams correctly with, of course, God's help. And then as they are being released, the two officials, Joseph pleads with the cupbearer for his innocence, asks him to remember him, to show him kindness, to mention his name to Pharaoh, and to get him out of out of the prison but once again a curveball is thrown the last chapter of the verse uh, the last verse of the chapter states very clearly the chief cupbearer however did not remember joseph he forgot him seems like this lad can't catch a break so this morning as we look at joseph's life from a holistic perspective not just one event in his life we're going to see a secondary theme and a primary theme in his life. The secondary theme in Joseph's life is the persistent presence of injustice. Whether it was at the hands of his brothers or the hands of Potiphar's wife, he is the recipient of injustice. But the greater, the bigger, the primary theme in Joseph's life is the protection that God has for him in all of these circumstances. These two themes of injustice and in God's protection are not unique to Joseph or even to just people in the Bible. These themes are present in the lives of believers even today. Believers all over the planet are experiencing injustice of all kind, while at the same time they're also experiencing God's presence, his provision, and his protection. So what is What is injustice? You know over the last few months the issue of justice and injustice has come to the forefront. Pent-up frustration and anger of centuries of injustice has boiled over in the streets of our neighbors to the south as well as in the streets of our own country in some cases. You know the dictionary defines injustice as it is the absence of justice or it is a violation of what is considered right and just. But there's a more appropriate definition, and it is a violation of the rights of another. Injustice happens when one individual considers their rights or privileges to be more important than those of another. It happens when one individual believes that their wealth, social status, their economic advantage, education, or some other criterion elevates them over another. It happens when one person uses their authority or power to control, remove, or reduce the rights and privileges of another human being. And it happens when an act, any act, results in the debasement or denigration of another human being. Injustice is present all around us. It is injustice, as is a custom in Uganda, when a man dies, his farm, his property, all goes back to his family, leaving the widow and the children completely destitute. That is injustice. It is injustice when a politician uses his or her position to influence a judicial matter. It is injustice when a child arrives at the school day after day with with an empty stomach. It is injustice when a veteran who's given his mind and soul and body to serve this country is forced to live on the streets because we do not take care of them. It is injustice when a senior who has spent all of their lives building up this country has to make a decision between paying for their utilities or buying their food for the week. It is injustice when a person pulls out a gun to hurt someone else on the other end. It is injustice when an individual does not have the opportunity to earn a decent living. But it is also an injustice when that individual destroys and loots someone else's business and robs them of their livelihood. It is injustice when someone in a blue uniform who has sworn to protect others ends up hurting them. But it is also injustice when anyone who wears a blue uniform gets painted with the same brush. In our church, we have a number of individuals who are frontline workers. They are doctors, they're nurses, they're paramedics, they're firefighters, they're police officers, they work in our armed forces. And I can guarantee you that every single one of them, when they put on their uniform to go out, they have one purpose in mind, and that is to serve others. When the police officers leave their home, they put on their uniform, they're going out so that I and you can come home safely to our families. Many of them do not know that as they hug their wives and husbands and hug their children as they're leaving for their shift, if they will be coming home or not. As a church, along with at least 51 other churches in our community, we pray for our police force. Why, because we believe that the work they do is dangerous and it is worthy, and it is done for us. And so in all the murkiness and, and, and anger that's been directed at the police with a white brush, I want to affirm the frontline workers, the police officers, the armed forces personnel who are part of our church family that we value what you do, we know the danger you put yourself in for us and for our community, and we pray for you. Injustice is a universal disease. And like every disease, it has a cause. The root cause of injustice is our sinful nature it is the sin that became part of our nature when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God created them in His image, and when He created them, He gave them His communicable attributes, one of those being justice. Our God is a just God. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed Him, that image was broken, and so entered injustice. When you pair that broken image with the selfishness of our natures, it is easy to see why we would consider it perfectly fine to violate the rights of another. We do injustice to others because we do not see them as being made in the image of God. We see them through the lens of social class, education, wealth, color of their skin, or some other man-made criteria, instead of seeing them as God sees them. Whenever we see someone, whenever we see someone treating another person unjustly, we're witnessing the effects of sin. The presence of injustice is everywhere. It is not racially, culturally, geographically bound. It is part of human nature. And it is part of our sin nature. The Christians have been on the forefront of being recipients of injustice for centuries, and this is escalating at, a, at, a, at an exponential pace around the world. Christians are one of the most persecuted group of people around the planet. But before I give ourselves a free pass, I also want to acknowledge and say that over the centuries, the institution called the church, not the body of Christ, the institution called the church has also been the cause for many injustices in the world. The most notable and notorious, I believe, in the history of our own country is the legacy of residential schools, the effects of which will be for generations to come. So how should the body of Christ, not the institutional church, but the body of Christ's church respond to injustice. I believe that the church must stand for justice and against injustice. The dividing line for the church should not be any man-made criteria such as skin color or social status. The dividing line should be how God sees a situation and how God's heart responds to that situation. The only filter we can use, the only lens we can use to see through is how God views each and every one of us. He wants the church to intercede on behalf of the single parent, on behalf of the orphan, for the downtrodden and for the marginalized. But he also wants us to intercede for the frontliners, for the nurses, for the doctors, for the paramedics, for the firefighters, for the police officers, for social workers and for members of our armed forces. He wants us to intercede and serve everyone who's made in His image. The Church of Jesus Christ has to stand against injustice and has to stand for justice. Now I said that that's our secondary theme, so what's our primary theme? Well, our primary theme is the protection of God. Despite the persistent presence, the prevalent presence of injustice in the world, the Christian can take comfort in this fact that they are under the protection of God. Even in our darkest hours, God is present with us. Even when Joseph felt that he was alone, even when the Bible doesn't record God's presence, God was present with Joseph. He is active, he is engaged, he is involved, and he is watching over the lives of every one of his children. Let us read from Psalm 91. Let me read that for you. Psalm 91 is a great psalm of encouragement for the believers. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. This Psalm is one of the most loved Psalms, uh, probably in the entire book of Psalms. But if we look at the Psalm and look at the first couple of verses, there are some very strong, possessive, relational words in the first two verses. The Psalmist says, I will see of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What is the psalmist doing? He's establishing his personal relationship with God Almighty. He is proclaiming that the God of the universe is his God. Joseph had that personal relationship with God. Through the ups and downs in his life, he continued to have this deep relationship with him. God was with him. Pastor Doug mentioned last Sunday that chapter 39 is book ended with the statement, the Lord was with Joseph. The God of Joseph's ancestors, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob, was his God as well. He was not leaning on a God about whom he had read in a storybook, or someone that his great-grandfather had met, or one that his dad had wrestled with. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was also the God of Joseph. And in the midst of all of his problems, Joseph could rest in the comfort of knowing that God Almighty was his protector. I grew up in a Christian home in in Pakistan. Uh, Church, Bible reading and prayer were an integral part of our lives and I was tremendously blessed to have a legacy of ancestors who had followed God all their lives. My great-grandparents were the first converts on both sides of our family my grandparents, my parents, they all followed, followed God. But perhaps the greatest influence that I had in my life growing up was that of my mother and my grandmother. They were two giants, if you will, of faith in my life. And the two of them had this fixed routine every day. My mother would wake up first thing in the morning around 5, 5.30 in the morning, and the first thing she would do would be to open her Bible, read the scripture, and then pray for a while before anything, anyone got up. My grandma had a slightly different routine. She would get up, she would have her breakfast, and then after breakfast, she would go and sit on her bed. She would sit cross-legged, and she had this massive, large print Urdu Bible, and she would open it in her lap and read it, and then she would pray. But in their examples, I saw a relationship with God. My elders laid this foundation of faith and introduced me to their God, and I I sincerely hope that many of you can relate to that. But at the end of time, at the end of time, when I stand before God, when we all stand before God, it is not going to be our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith, that is going to allow us to enter into an eternity with God. It is going to be our faith. I will not be able to say to God, let me in because my grandmother and my mother had faith in you. I will have to show that I was in a relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ had already done. I pray that many of us here this morning can say yes to the answer of having a relationship with God, your own personal relationship. Is that a statement you can make about your relationship with God? That the God you were introduced to as a child by your parents or grandparents is your God? Can you make that declaration that he is your refuge, your fortress, and your God in whom you trust? God's protection is for those who are in a personal relationship with him. His protection is also in the spiritual realm. We have an enemy who operates in the spiritual realm. And when you become a believer, when you become a believer and place your trust in Jesus Christ, you basically put a big target mark on your back. The devil and all his cronies are gonna come after you. The psalmist speaks of the fowler's snare in verses 3 to 13, he speaks of the fowler's snare, referring to the temptations that the devil can bring to you, all in the hopes of steering you off course. He speaks of the serpent. The serpent, of course, is a representation of Satan, the shape he assumed in the Garden of Eden to tempt Eve. In, verse, uh, in, verse five, in chapter 5 of First Peter, we hear, the devil as a roaring lion who is prowling to devour someone. You, the believer, are in a spiritual battle every moment of every day. This is not a theoretical statement, it is a fact. The enemy knows your vices, whether it is your passions, your possessions, your power, your popularity, your money, fame or influence, whatever it is, the enemy is going to try to use it to derail you off your testimony. But there is hope. And our hope is in God, our protector. Regardless of how strong the attacks of the enemy are, God has provided his protection to you. Whatever it is that tempts you, that entices you, God's spirit that indwells you, and God's word that is with you, are your best defenses and offenses against that. You know, sometimes we, we ascribe too much power to the devil, we somehow think in our, in our Star Wars mindset, somehow we think that there's a good being called God up here, and then there's a bad being of equal power and equal might called the devil, and it's a battle between good and evil, and we don't know who's going to win. Nothing could be farther from the truth God is the only powerful, most powerful being in the universe. The devil is a created being. His counterpart is not God. His counterpart are the archangels Michael and Gabriel, because he was an archangel. So when we place the two of them on equal footing, we're actually quite off base from true theology. We cannot describe to the devil the power that God has. God's word reassures us over and over again that he protects us from evil because we have entered his sanctuary. Let me just read a couple of quick verses for you. Psalm 27, verse 1, reads this. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Or Isaiah 54, a very, very well-known verse in, in the church. Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. It's not the Lord mumbling it or whispering it. He is declaring it, that no weapon forged against you will prevail. Or in Romans 8, 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know the picture that Thomas gives of the devil being the serpent while the Son of Man has already crushed the head of the serpent. The picture of the devil being a roaring lion is no comparison to the lion of the tribe of Judah. That lion is on your side and he is your defender and your protector. God protects us in the spiritual realm. God also extends that protection to our physical realm. Same set of verses, verses 3 to 13, also talk about the different types of protection that we have in the physical realm. The psalmist talks about having God's protection at all times of day. He uses words like midday, darkness, night, day, He refers to this because he wants to make sure we understand that there is not one moment of time when God is not watching over his children. If you are one of his children, he has you covered absolutely and completely. Not only is his coverage at all times, but it is also against everything that may intend to cause you harm. There is nothing that comes to you without God's permission. And when we enter into a time of struggle, it is because God has permitted it. He has a purpose in allowing us to go through times of struggle. We see that in Joseph's life. The struggles that he had ended up becoming one of the pinnacles of his life when he became the prime minister of Egypt. The psalmist speaks of protection from pestilences and plagues. How appropriate is that given the state that we are in today? For months now, the world's been paralyzed by a pestilence, but God's promise is to protect us in circumstances like this. You know, God's protection gives the believer an uncommon peace and comfort. For a believer, we read, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's passages like this that create a very uncommon response in the life of a believer who's facing adversity. When you're in the middle of an adversity, if God brings you through, you know that God has purpose for you to still continue to work to advance his kingdom. But if the Lord takes you home in that time, as we heard many of the pastors in Bolivia have, guess what? You're receiving the crown of righteousness. A believer cannot lose. You live and you continue to serve God. You die and you are in His presence instantly. The psalmist says that God will cover us under His feathers, which is a very gentle picture of a God. Like a mother bird who protects her young, God protects us. Having God's protection, by the way, doesn't mean that we don't face struggles. Uh, We've seen that right from the Old Testament into the New Testament, kings, prophets, patriarchs, disciples have all gone through struggles. But God's protection for us is the protection of a child that a parent offers them. In the middle of the storm, God is holding on to you. You know, God gives us so many promises in his book. We read off promise after promise that God gives to his believers, to his children. And just in the last three verses of this particular chapter, or this particular psalm, there are a plethora of promises. We won't have time to look at each, each and every one of them, but let me share those with you. This is what the Lord has promised to those who put their trust in him. He says this, because he loves me and acknowledges my name and calls upon my name, I will rescue him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him with long life. And I will show him my salvation. Eight promises in three verses and every single one of those promises if you just take these eight they cover every single part of your life in three short verses God has given us eight promises I'll share with you a very quick story of a Christian woman from from Pakistan uh, I'm sure you, many of you are familiar with her story. Her name is Asiya Bibi. Uh, Asiya is a Christian woman. She's a mother of two. And in June of 2009, she had uh, a conflict, um, a, a heated discussion with her Muslim co-workers, and they reported her as having blasphemed the prophet, and she was thrown in prison. In Pakistan, all you need are three witnesses to say that a Christian has said something blasphemous about the prophet or the holy book and you're instantly in jail. A year and a half later on November 8th, 2010, she was handed a death sentence. There were myriad of appeals through the judicial system but each appeal got denied and and, uh, was rejected. She was interviewed in 2012 after having been in prison for almost three years, and she said that she had forgiven those who were persecuting her, and she further said that she is content, she is content that her future is in God's hands, and she will accept whatever his will was. An uncommon response for someone sitting in a prison. While she was in jail, she was in solitary confinement, She was allowed to leave her cell for 30 minutes a day. Her husband and her two children would visit her for one hour each week. She was forced to make her own meals because the jail jail staff couldn't guarantee that her food would would not be poisoned. Uh, There were multiple attempts to assassinate her while she was in prison. Asya Bibi remained in jail for nearly 10 years. And through all this time, She prayed and she fasted, and she refused to give up her faith. And then around the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019, her sentence was overturned, and she was freed. And shortly after she was freed, she was flown out of Pakistan to a safe country. That is a remarkable story of someone that God chose to free from from the prison But there are, for every Asya Bibi, there are dozens if not scores of Christians who are not freed, who are still in prison, who are still hanging on to their faith, or who who have been executed. As the worship team comes up and makes their way to the stage, let me just conclude with this final thought. While we in North America may not be able to relate to instances like this, there is a time coming when we will experience injustices like this. Our cultural, economic, political, and even judicial systems are moving farther and farther away from our Judeo-Christian foundations of this civilization. This ever-widening gap will result in a greater struggle and injustice toward the followers of Christ. Stories like that of Joseph and maybe of Asya Bibi will undoubtedly become commonplace. And so what is our response as believers? How are we to prepare as believers for that? Well, I believe there, that in circumstances like this, our response should be the same as that of Joseph and of Asya Bibi, living every day in integrity before God living every day to honor God, living every day to bring glory to his name, and living every day to develop a deeper, more intimate relationship with him, where we can boldly proclaim that he is my refuge, he is my fortress, and he is my God in whom I trust. And then resting on his promises that he will rescue you, he will protect you, when you call him, he will answer you, He will be with you in trouble, he will deliver you, he will honor you, and he will satisfy you with a long life. And he will show you his salvation. Amen.
1: There might be some people right now who are participating in this service, perhaps from home, and you're maybe wrestling today with some of the words that that Ezra spoke about having a relationship with God. Maybe those are words that you've heard before. Maybe that's not something that you've experienced before in person. And maybe today, I pray, I hope, I pray that this is the day. Maybe today is the day that you turn to God and and say, Lord, I know that you sent your son. Like we just sang, like Ezra just preached, I know that you sent your son to die for my sin so that I don't have to pay the punishment for my sin and so that I can have relationship with you, free relationship with you. And if you do that today, if, that, if this is the day that you turn to the Lord, then all those things that Ezra said about relationship with God apply to you for free. It doesn't matter who you were before. It doesn't matter if you shook your fist at God before. If you turn to Christ and ask him for free grace from the cross that's free for us, that he paid for, he will lavish that on you, I promise. And he will protect you, and he will guide you, and he will change you, and you will find joy that you have not yet experienced. And I invite you to pray. Let's pray together. And if this is something that you're wrestling with, I invite you to pray with me as well. Father, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you are our refuge, that you are our God, that you have made promises that you will always fulfill. And I thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son Jesus, that he is the way, he is the only way, a way that you made, that we can know you, that we can know you and that you will be with us in a way that is is personal and close and real now and for all of eternity in your presence. And I pray for any of those, for all of those this morning who don't know you yet, who might be wondering what that even looks like. And I pray that if they're wondering that and they need to talk to somebody, that they would call that number, that prayer number, or call the church office, or talk to a friend who's a believer, I pray that you would show them yourself. And if they're ready to take that step, even right now, I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you and that they would just ask for your forgiveness, for your grace, trusting that Jesus Christ is the one who has supplied it. That they might know you in a way that they would not have dreamed of before. I thank you for the freedom that we have. I thank you for the God that you are, and I thank you that we are safe under your wings from our sin and from all other things that could pull us away from the joy of knowing you when we are in Christ. Please bless each one as we go from here into the day, whatever that is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.